Alrighty, go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We started this chapter last week, and if you recall, hopefully you recall at this point, because it's been about nine months, we've been going verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. This has been a wonderful ride, and we are getting right towards the end. For only has 16 chapters. We're in the second half of chapter 15. Let's just see if anyone can do this. As we started last week, 1 Corinthians 15, what is this chapter about? Who remembers? The resurrection, thank you. It's about the resurrection. If you wanna know what's a great chapter in the Bible about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. That should just be on every Christian's heart, every Christian's mind. That's where you should turn when you're thinking about the resurrection. Nearly every culture throughout history has attempted to answer the question of what happens to us after we die. Interestingly, it's, uh, it's only very recent history in the world where there's a group of folks, strong kind of atheists who believe that there's nothing that happens to you after you die. But basically every culture has, has developed some sense of what they believe happens after you die. For the Greeks of old, they believed that heaven was a place where the pantheon of gods would kind of argue with each other and do these misdeeds together. And every once in a while, they'd, they'd speak into human existence and kind of change the historic outcomes of things. Atheists today, for example, we just taught this in our Case for Christianity class. Atheists today believe, that, believe truly that life is an illusion, that we are simply molecules bursting forth from the Big Bang. There's no such thing as the self. There's no such thing as conscience. It's all just an illusion. And therefore, once this illusion ends, that's it. It's the end of an illusion. Buddhists and Hindus together believe in a sense of reincarnation, that you come back again in some other form, and uh, ultimately, once you reach your highest form, you as an individual cease to be. The, uh, the visual that they oftentimes use is of a drop of water being dropped into a great ocean. The individual water disappears. You, you're gone and you merge with the great divinity, the energy that is over the universe. Muslims believe that heaven is a place where men will be surrounded by countless virgins, ongoing promiscuity. And I know I don't mean to just completely knock one particular worldview, but that is part of the vision of the Muslim hope, endless promiscuity. What do you believe will happen to you after you die? What do you believe happens when you die? Have you ever thought about that long enough to really let it form you and shape you? What will life be like? Will it be similar to what it's like now? Will it be different from what it's like now? Will we have bodies? Will we be kind of ghosts? Where will it be? Is it up kind of in outer space somewhere? Is it in a different realm? Who will we know? Will we recognize anything from this life when we get to heaven? Or will it be totally new, distinct? Will we continue to exist? Or is what we consider self right now going to be something utterly different on the other side of death? These are questions, again, that every culture has tried to answer. And by God's grace, God has given us clarity. He has not left us wondering. We don't have to shoot in the dark wondering what's gonna happen. The God of creation, the God who sustains the universe, has spoken with some clarity into what, should, what will take place. Now, he has not given every bit of detail we would like. There's much mystery to what happens after death, and yet there's also some great clarity that we as Christians can build a hope off of as we look forward to what is to come, and it should shape the life we have today. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Last week, in the first half of this chapter, we really focused on the importance of Christ's resurrection. And we dealt with the impact of what that means. If Christ is raised from the dead, then these are the consequences. 
it's a great turning point in human history. And just to recap that really quickly, if Jesus truly did raise from the dead, not just spiritually or metaphorically, not just as some kind of you know, fairy tale about how to overcome hurdles in your life, but if he died after a spear was thrust into his side and heart, if he died, was placed in a tomb, and came back to life after saying that was what, that's what would happen, then by, then by necessity, all of history has to be changed. Everything has to be different. It must be different because it validates everything he ever taught. That was last week. And now today we begin to look at the reality of our, of our own resurrection of what is to come. If Christ rose from the dead, then his promises that we will also rise from the dead are true. So let's get our hope in order. Where are we going? The question I want to answer today is really simple. What's heaven going to be like? What's heaven going to be like? Two main ideas, two principles to try to answer that question. First, we're going to look at our body. What will our body be like? And then we're going to consider the larger framework of what will the place, heaven, be like? So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 35. The first principle is very simply this. We, our bodies, will undergo a physical bodily transformation in preparation for life in heaven. Get that again. We will undergo a physical bodily transformation in preparation for life in heaven. Verses 35 through 41. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. All right? Now, Paul opens up this hypothetical argument. Someone's, someone's going to ask. He says, someone will ask, how were the dead raised? And it's a hypothetical argument. And, and probably it's rooted, as we saw last week, in the philosophy of his day. The philosophy of his day. If you recall, the philosophy of Athens in first century Rome, and in that time period, was this very dualistic mindset. And the dualism was between that which is earthly and fleshly and made of matter, the things you can touch, and the spiritual. If you know the Greeks, they loved the mind. They, it, it was the intellect and, the, and, and, and rational thinking that was what was primary importance. And the body was dirty. It was insignificant. And, and so you can imagine in that philosophy, in that culture, suddenly saying, no, 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 we're, we're going to raise into a physical body. The general person in the first century is saying, what do you mean we're going to have a physical body? In eternity? If eternity is perfect and eternity is heaven, there's not going to be physical bodies there. That wouldn't make any sense because those are dirty. Those are fleshly. That's the first century thought. And the Bible comes along and, and Jesus takes on a resurrected physical body. And this changes everything. And so Paul imagines someone making this hypothetical argument. All right, Paul, I hear you about the resurrection. But tell me this, how are they going to be raised? If it's going to take place, how is a physical, dirty body like ours going to be raised? And Paul, Paul's response is to use three different illustrations. If you saw it in here, he, he talks about seeds and flowers. And then he talks about uh, different bodies among different animals. And then he talks about different cosmic kind of stars and moon and sun and things like that. So let's go through each of them. His point is, is that God has made different bodies with different degrees of glory. 
Now remember the question he's asking. He's responding to the person that thinks it's foolish that we're gonna have physical bodies when we raise from the dead. They think that's silly, that's yucky. And Paul says, look, don't different bodies in God's creation have different degrees of glory? Consider a kernel and the flower that grows of it. All the DNA that's going to make that flower is there. It's, it's still the same. It, it's the same matter, if you will, and yet there's a glory of the flower that is different than the glory of a kernel. And in some way, he's saying that that's gonna be a little bit what it's like when we get our new bodies for heaven. He goes to animals, and he, and he says, look at the animal kingdom. He says, there's fish, and there's birds, and there's different degrees of fish, and, and we would certainly say that the glory of a humpback whale is different than the glory of a tadpole. As you just look at the, the grandness of God's design, there's just different glories among these different bodies. In the same way, the, the different bodies are fit for their different contexts. Uh, God made a fish with a particular body to swim in water and to swim in the ocean. He made birds with a particular body to fly through the air. He made humanity to, with a particular body to live in, in the world that we live in. And isn't, it, couldn't it also be the case that God would make a body that's fit for a new, a new space, for a heavenly space? That's his argument here. And then he says, look at the stars. He says, consider the stars and the moon and the sun and all the cosmic reality that we live underneath. And when you look at them, the moon is different than the sun. By God's grace, the moon's different than the sun, right? Because if the moon was the sun, then we would overheat and this planet wouldn't exist. And praise God that the sun is not the moon because we wouldn't have enough heat and there wouldn't be enough gravity and nothing would work on this earth. He goes, and so God hand-created and hand-designed all the different heavenly bodies for a perfect purpose in what they were designed to do. He says, isn't it the case that couldn't God make a, particularly, a particular heavenly body for each of us to live in heaven? Now, these illustrations are offered as a way of describing this transformation that's gonna come over our body. And I, I wanna make sure I pause here just to make sure you get where I'm going with this. My aim today and what I've been praying for you is that you leave here from last Sunday and this Sunday with such an excitement for heaven that, that you can't help but do a heel click when you walk out of here. You're gonna, you're gonna, leap, in the, you're gonna leap in the parking lot. You're gonna look like a fool walking down like this because, because you begin to get a sense for what God has called you to. God is going to transform our earthly bodies at the resurrection. When he raises us from the dead, and there's gonna be some kind of transformation that is a little like comparing the different degrees of glory of the different animals, or the different degrees of glory of a kernel to a flower. The, the seeds of who you are, your body, you, are there. It's not fundamentally different in the sense that there's no more of you. You're still there, and yet your glory will be far different than it is now. It's gonna be far different. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 43, Paul explains it. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. 42, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Again, three ideas here. And he's comparing these two bodies, our earthly body to our heavenly body. Three, three ideas. One is perishable, the other is imperishable. What does it mean that the new heavenly body we get is gonna be transformed? Well, the body we have now is perishable. You hit this hard enough, it breaks. You bleed. You grow old, right? Eventually, every one of us will pass away. In one, from one way or another, every one of us is gonna face death lest Christ return before we see that day. But the new body that we're gonna receive is not like that. It can't be bruised. It can't be broken. It won't grow old. It won't grow weary. 
What is it? What is it? What is the Old Testament says? It says we will run and not grow weary, right? Your body will 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 be imperishable. Again, we have to use a little bit of imagination here. We have some words to describe this, but let your imagination flourish as you consider the imperishability of eternity. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. There's something about the glory of the body that we're going to have that when one day we look back on the bodies we have now, that, that we're going to say, <laughs> it's not worth comparing. That, that was something else. I, I like to, this is a bit of a crude way of thinking about it, but I like to say one day when we get up to heaven and we're in our new bodies, we're going to look at the bodies we had now, even the most beautiful and strong and fittest among us, and we're going to look back and think we looked like some kind of zombie, like that was the body we were operating in? I can't believe that's what we had to work with down there. And then you see the body you have up in heaven, and you're like, it's not even worth comparison. The, the weakest of us are like Hulk Hogan walking around in here. It's just a different degree of glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. This is not just muscle power, but this is actually, if you think of what did God design humanity to do? And what are the limitations of what we're able to do as a result of sin? God designed humanity for a purpose. And when we are raised into eternity, there's going to be a strength and an inside conviction and power to actually do the work God's assigned us to do without growing weary without fainting, without, without, without tiring of it. There's a new power that comes in the resurrection. Is your heart beating a little faster? I, there was a book, one of my very favorite book series by C.S. Lewis, it's his Space Trilogy. And most of you guys know he wrote the Narnia series. But he wrote another kind of hidden one a lot of folks don't know about called the Space Trilogy, which I think is better than Narnia, actually. And in that, that hideous strength, the final book, there's this scene where the main character, his name is Ransom, Ransom has spent time in the heavenlies. He spent time closer to the angels. He spent time closer towards God, if you will. And his body has already started to transition into this glorious body. But it's not fully there yet. And he's down in London one day, and this woman, Jane, comes across him. And in this chapter, she describes what she sees as she looks at Ransom, this man who spent a little bit of time closer to God. She reads this. Jane looked at Ransom. And instantly her world was unmade. Let that sentence sit in you for a second. Her world was unmade just by glancing at a body that was partially glorified. On a sofa before her, with one foot bandaged, he had been injured, as if he had a wound, lay what appeared to be a boy, 20 years old. All the light in the room seemed to run towards the gold hair and the gold beard of the wounded man. Of course, he was not a boy. How could she have thought so? The fresh skin on his forehead and cheeks and above all on his hands had suggested the idea, but, but no boy could have so full a beard and no boy could be so strong. It was manifest that the grip of those hands would be inescapable and imagination suggested that those arms and shoulders could support the whole house. How could she have thought him young or old either? It came over her with a sensation of quick fear that this face was of no age at all. For the first time in all those years, she tasted the word king in itself with all linked associations of battle, marriage, priesthood, mercy, and power. At that moment, as her eyes first rested on his face, Jane forgot who she was. I think God gifts earth, gifted authors at times throughout history in order for us to get glimpses of things that are beyond us. 
And I think in that moment, he is capturing something from 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul was also trying to communicate. There is a glory of our bodies that is going to be experienced when we raise from the dead and we get a new physical body that is different. And were we to even see it, our whole world would be undone. Were we to fully understand it with more words than we're given in 1 Corinthians 15, but if we were to see it with our eyes, it's over. You can't go on living the way you did once before. Because God's designed it for a different degree of glory. A degree of glory to live with God for all eternity. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 44 to 49. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. Now he's going to compare it to Adam and Eve. Thus it's written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What's his point here? Again, he's, he's continuing the same narrative. And he's asking, what's this body going to be like? He's going to say, well... Well, it's a different degree of glory, but that would make sense, right? Because the body we have now is inherited to us by Adam. We've all descended ultimately from Adam's line. We've all inherited sinfulness and a corrupted nature, a corrupted mind, a corrupted heart, bodies that are frail and breakable, all of that consequence of the sin. But, But when you're given a new body, that inheritance is no longer The only inheritance you have is the spiritual inheritance that is yours in Christ Jesus if you've placed your faith in Christ. And that inheritance comes not only with with an eternity of what you you might call riches, not necessarily wealth in heaven per se, but, but the glorious inheritance of all that is Christ's that he will bestow on his people. But it also comes with a spiritual body. An inheritance of a new spiritual body that is like Christ's new body that he has in heaven. Now let's get specific just for a moment. What happens when we die? Let's just be real specific. What happens when we die? Well, when we die, this body of ours will be placed in a grave, this physical body. And the concept, we'll get back to in just a moment, of placing a body in a grave is the hope of the resurrection. That's why we bury bodies. It's the hope of the resurrection that is to come. And what happens is that your soul, your soul, will go to what is called paradise. Now, Jesus, on the cross, looked to the thief who was being killed next to him and looked to the man and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And paradise is a lot like heaven, but it is not the final heaven. I need you to understand this. Now, what bodies will you have in paradise? I don't know. The the Bible does not give us specifics on what that looks like and where that is and how it specifically works. But I believe that right now, those who have passed away in Christ are before Christ in a heaven-like place. But it's like a layover on the way to heaven. It's not the final heaven. It's not the final heaven. There is another heaven that is yet to come. Now, let's read about this. One day, Christ is gonna return And when Christ returns, he is going to usher in the final heaven and the final earth. He's going to bring all that is the glory of heaven, and he's going to merge it with this physical earth. And that day has not come yet. We're on the way towards that day, but the final heaven, the actual heaven that is to be, where we're going to get our final glorified bodies, is going to be on this renewed earth. This is very different than what a lot of people think. 
Many folks think heaven is gonna be this place where we have angelic bodies and we float around on clouds playing harps all day and we have nothing, no, nothing similar to what we desire to do in this body and in this life. That's not the biblical vision. Verses 50 to 57. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Then he quotes the Old Testament. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, we shared a little bit about this last week, but let's make sure we understand this fully. There's coming a day. And this day will come, and it is closer today than it has ever been in human history, when a trumpet will sound that will be heard over the entire earth. That day is coming, and the trumpet sounding is the moment that is supposed to inaugurate the coming of Christ, his return into this earth in a physical body. And when that trumpet sounds, and when Jesus returns, that day is coming, when he returns, all history comes to an end. All world history, as we knew, comes to an end. And at that moment, all the dead are raised and given their new glorified bodies that we've just been describing. And those who are still alive who have not yet died will come right after them and they will receive their own glorified bodies and we will live on this earth in a new glorified body in the new and final heavens. Now let me have a little comment here about burial. I mentioned before that the reason that we bury folks after they pass away is in hope of the resurrection. It's interesting, in, in Eastern contexts where they don't believe in the resurrection, the norm oftentimes is to cremate bodies. Now, cremating a body is, I would not say sin by any means, but there's deep symbolism between cremation and between burial. And I want you to know that as your pastor. The Christian history is to bury bodies. In fact, many churches will have their own graveyard attached to the church. And the reason for that is because they consider themselves a family and they're looking forward to all being raised together at that day when Christ comes back. Isn't that a way to think about a church family? What if we loved each other so much that we said, let's all be buried next to each other. So the first thing we see when we're raised into glory is we look to the left and the right and we see, you're here too, buddy. <laughs> we're going. We, we did a lot of life together and here we are. See, in the Eastern context, the, the end of life is the, 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 the loss of self. You disappear into, and so the, the act of cremation is the, the symbolic end of self. But in burial, it's the symbolic awaiting what is to come when you resurrect to eternity with those who also have placed their faith in Christ. The consequences of sin is death. We just read this beautiful verse here. When, um, it says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the, the consequences of sin is death. And the reason why these bodies that we have right now die is, is not because that's how God originally designed them. That's actually a consequence of rebellion to God. And that's what the text says. And, and, and the law, the, the law of God, the moral law that God gave, all that does is constantly convict us and condemn us of our failure to actually live up to that law. It shows us, yes, you're living in the consequences of sin. 
You can't live up to this, and the consequences are death. But Christ has granted a victory. Church, hear this. Every one of us, lest Christ returns first, every one of us will face our death one day. For some, it will be sooner than rather than later. But if your faith and hope is in Jesus, then you have a victor who has conquered death, who has gone to the other side and come back and told us. I'll remember talking to somebody. This was years ago. I was talking to somebody. I was asking what they thought would happen after death. And their response to me, this person was a skeptic towards Christianity. They said, I said, what would it take for you to believe in what I'm telling you? And he said, if someone came back from the dead and then told us what it was like, then I'd believe. I said, well, good news, because... Because Jesus died, and then he got victory over death, and then he came and told us what it was like. Will you believe now? Now, church, I spent all last week trying to convince you that this is a historical fact of history, and if he actually resurrected from the dead, then he's got something to say about what's going to happen to us, and you are on the line because he's communicated it to you. You're on the line because God has communicated you with great clarity. He sent Christ who, with great clarity, said this is what's gonna happen. Judgment is coming. The consequences of sin is death, but the free gift of God, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, is the forgiveness of all sin, victory in Christ. Don't you love how he does this? This is my kind of passage here. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul is taunting death. He's trash-talking death. That's what he's doing in this passage. He's looking at all the worst the devil can throw at us. And he's saying, what are you going to throw at me? What do you have? You've got nothing over a guy who's already died and come back to life and who's guaranteed my own resurrection. Come on, life, bring it. What are you going to bring at me? What hardship are you going to throw at me today, life? What hardship are you going to throw at me? And Christian, can we pause here for a second? Oh, this is why 1 Corinthians 15 is so important. Because we come into a room like this, and, and most of us in this room have some hardship, something, especially on a day like Mother's Day, that there's just, that there's pain for a lot of folks. I know that. And we come in here, and, and the reality is, is what we're longing for when you come to church is to just be, have hope restored in some way. Has something to cling to in the midst of the reality of hardship in this fallen world and all the hardship that we have. And I'm preaching to you the hope that you have. I'm preaching to you the hope and I want you to cling to it to such a degree that you might, like Paul, taunt those enemies who want to try to taunt you and say, what are you going to throw at me? I've been through it all. I've seen a lot of life. And I know this, I know what's to come, and whatever else life has to throw at me, I'm clinging to Christ. He's my victor, that's where I'm going. Church, that's your command today after reading 1 Corinthians 15, is to cling with a hope to what Christ is gonna do to you. Now, our bodies will undergo a physical transformation. Our bodies are gonna change. We're gonna have a different degree of glory. We need to look forward to that and hope in that. And yet, it's not just our bodies, but it's this entire earth that's gonna change. What's heaven gonna be like? Well, we know what our bodies are gonna be like, something about what they're gonna be like. But what about this earth? We have to look to a different passage here. 1 Corinthians uh, 15 talks more about our bodies, but I wanna take this opportunity to speak to what heaven's gonna be like a bit more broadly. Revelation chapter 21, another great passage that speaks to the resurrection, says this. The, the, the disciple, the apostle John, is, has a vision of heaven. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is after Christ returns. And the sea was no more. Now, I don't know if that means there's no more ocean. I was really looking forward to surfing in heaven. So I don't know if that's symbolic or non-symbolic. If it's not symbolic, I trust that God knows what is best. 
I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, what do we see in this passage? Christ is going to return, and he's going to renew this earth. Meaning, this earth is where we're going to live. This geographical space is where we're going to be. It's not out in the stars somewhere else. It's not in some other realm. You're going to have a physical body on this physical earth as this physical earth was meant to be. And all that has been broken and all that has been corrupted and all that has been polluted will be gone away, never to be seen again. And this earth will be renewed, memorable in a sense, just like your bodies. You'll still have a sense of who you were. We'll recognize each other in heaven. You'll recognize this earth and the places on earth that you remember. But it will be different. It will be a different degree of glory. There will be no pollution, no, no hardship, no, no stains and scars of man's work destroying that which is here. It'll be just as God designed it to be. Anthony Hockema writes this. In his redemptive activity, God does not destroy the works of his hands, but cleanses them from sin and perfects them so that they might finally reach the goal for which he created them. This principle means that the new earth to which we look forward will not be totally different from the present one, but will be a renewal and glorification of the earth on which we now live. Now, this is a hope that is, that's hidden yet peppered throughout the entire Bible. The Old Testament regularly references this day when things will be different, that the natural world will operate according to different laws. I chose two of them, Ezekiel 36, 35. I will, and they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. There's a, there's a change in the cities. The, the wastelands and the places that felt like death are now renewed with life and with people. Isaiah 55, 13. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The, the, the thorns and the thistles. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 3 where Adam is cursed because of his sin. He said, you know, the, the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles and make all your work tiresome. <laughs> Those are gone. Th those are gone. We'll, we'll still labor. We'll still have community. But, but the thorns and thistles that make life tiresome on this earth will be gone. And there will be a unity between how our new body is designed for how the new earth is that's perfectly compatible. It'll be a perfect, you know, peanut butter and jelly coming together the way it's supposed to be. I suspect that we'll still recognize Lake Michigan as Lake Michigan. And yet, and yet I think that if you were to swim out in your heavenly body towards the middle of Lake Michigan, which I no doubt expect that every one of us will be able to do, and you were to look down, the water will be so crystal clear that it'll be like you're swimming in glass and you can see straight to the bottom all the sand and the shells in the bottom of the ocean, of the, of the lake. I suspect that we'll still recognize Mount Everest, but I suppose that our bodies will be so changed that that we won't need any gear to climb to the top of it, but we'll bound up together and rejoice at the top. I suspect that those who study the stars will find that the same constellations still exist in the night sky, but I suppose that our eyes will be so strong 
that to stare out on a night sky will be to see billions upon billions, if not trillions of stars and galaxies that the naked eye currently cannot see, but are there awaiting our sight. I suspect that the sun will still rise and fall as it has throughout all of history. But I suppose that the glory of the colors of every sunset and sunrise will pale in comparison to the most marvelous image you've ever seen. Because I also suspect that we will see colors that we cannot see right now. As is what I think was happening when Isaiah and Ezekiel saw the throne room of God and they saw the glory of God and they were fighting for words to describe the colors coming off the throne of Jesus. They, he said it was like carnelian and, and, and jade and, 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 and ruby. He, you can see he's just, he doesn't have words to describe the colors. He, he saw a glimpse of the throne room. And I suspect that in heaven, we're going to watch sunsets together. And we're just going to sit back and you won't be able to have a side conversation. Because you're just going to be stunned by the majesty of the artistry of our creator. It's going to be that good. One common question I come across is if heaven is boring. <laughs> in fact, I remember... Years ago, I was working at Starbucks and I was trying to share with my coworker, this barista, about heaven. And she said, yeah, 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 I've heard. I've heard all about it. We're just gonna get to heaven. We're gonna sing praise music to Jesus all day. It's gonna be real fun. Can't wait to get there. She was being sarcastic. She was being sarcastic. Now, I'm not being sarcastic. I think we're gonna deeply rejoice singing praise music to Jesus and worshiping Jesus. But, but her, her comment was one of boredom. She had heard what Christians were talking about when they spoke of heaven and she considered it the utter bore, just wasting time away in nothingness, singing some songs. And, and I suspect that heaven is the exact antithesis of boredom. In fact, I think hell, uh, despite all of the, the, the hardship and the suffering that takes place in hell, I think if there's a word to describe hell, it is monotony, the same over and over for eternity. In heaven, I suspect that the idea of life to the full is being lived out so perfectly in every waking moment, even in our sleep, that, that, that we, will, we will never even consider the word boring again. Bruce Milne writes this, the one who is Lord of the whole of life was never gonna bring us at the end into an eternal existence of mental constriction or of emotional and creative impoverishment. Creativity will surely be valued, for such an anticipation must be in keeping with the nature of him who set the morning stars a-singing. <laughs> I wonder what it will be like to be unrestricted by sin. We look back to Mozart and we look back to Beethoven, but I wonder what kind of music we'll create in heaven. The least of us right now, with the, with the least amount of musical talent. I wonder when we have eternity to work in a perfect glorified body, what kind of symphonies we'll make. I, I wonder what kind of art we'll paint. That we'll look back on the work of Van Gogh, we'll look back on the work of the great artists in history, the Monets, and we'll look back and we'll say, that, that was sown in dishonor. Because the least of us will be painting masterpieces to the glory of God and it will all be for the glory of our king there's no boredom in heaven there's life there's community there's friendship and at the center of it all 
At the center of all of it is Jesus our King. That's the text. At the center of all of it is Christ ruling and reigning over his creation. Because his mediatorial work of gathering from all the corners of the earth, his church, his elect, from people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation is complete. And he's gathered them and now he comes as their king and he rules over them and they joyfully submit underneath his lordship. And together with him, we celebrate the new heavens and the new earth. And the way we, we, we worship our king is by living into the fullness of what we were made to do by fellowshipping with one another, by, by living in community, by building society, but not a society tainted by sin, a society that is filled with the ethos of heaven, filled by the power of people who are living in glorified bodies in harmony with one another, and will travel. There's a lot of earth. There's a lot of earth. We're not stuck in one place. We'll go around. I've longed to, to be on a big boat and travel the seas. I hope that I have a couple thousand years to be on a huge sailboat and travel the seas. That would be wonderful. But at the center of it all is Christ. He's at the center of it. Let me ask you this. If you could get to heaven and you could have everything you ever wanted, everything, it's all there. Everyone you've ever loved, all the things that you enjoy doing, right? I don't know what you enjoy doing. I like playing guitar, I like reading good books. I like working out. I don't know if I'm going to work out in heaven, right? I used to like coffee. Maybe I can drink coffee again in heaven. I don't know. But, but imagine all the things you like doing. If you could have it all, but Jesus wasn't there, would you still want it? The first time that question was asked to me, I went home and I was haunted by a, a reality. And the reality was, I'd be fine. I think I'd be okay. And I let that haunting sit with me for a few months until the Lord did a work on me until I got to a place where I said, no, I wouldn't want that. And I want you to be honest with yourself today. I, I want you to be haunted by that question if you need to be haunted in a good sense. The center of heaven is our king. And as a Christian, you have been invited to begin a little taste of heaven in the here and now as good as heaven's gonna be. Christians, you get, a, you, get a, you get a glimpse of it right now. You taste of it right now because you are invited to live in relationship with that king right now. And the Christian says, I know it because I live it. I taste it at times. I know his presence, the reality of his forgiveness of my sin, that he loves me despite being a rebel to him. And he keeps loving me even when I mess up. You get to taste of it, and then, and then you get to be filled by the Holy Spirit, and you get to begin living out heaven into other people's lives, blessing them and, and loving on them. The way we're gonna love each other in heaven, just trying to pour it into other people's lives. Here's some heaven. Taste it. Here's a little heaven. Will you taste it? Isn't it good? Don't you want some more of that? Come into the church. Christian, you're invited into the taste of heaven here and now. It begins in this life. The fullness of it, it comes into a whole different glory when Christ returns, but you taste of it in this life. If you could have all of heaven without Christ, would you want it? If the answer is no, Christ, Christian, go home today. Go home today and do not get off your knees until Christ has done some work on your heart. What do we do with this? Well, verses 58, let me read to you the last verse of our chapter here. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, so this is interesting. What does Paul do with painting an eternal perspective? He, he paints this glorious picture for us. 
And, and, then he, and then he, what do we do with it? How should we be different? Here's what Paul's advice is. Be steadfast and, and immovable. If this is true, then dig your heels in and live as if it's true. Be steadfast, be immovable. Christian, don't waver. That's his advice. Do not waver. Hardship is gonna come. And in this country, honestly, it's only gonna get worse in big cities for Christians. Part of my job is to prepare you for suffering. You're a Christian, it's only gonna get worse for you in the short run. I believe in the long run, there's gonna be a great revival. I'm praying for that, I long for that. But in the short run, Christian, it's gonna get harder. What's Paul's advice? When it gets harder, hold on to heaven and be immovable. Don't bend. It's not worth it. Cling to Christ, he's enough for you. Abound in the work of the Lord. If heaven's real, what what ought we to do? We ought to be abounding in God's work in our life. Constantly holding our life open, saying, where am I to go? How am I to operate? Who am I to love today? How do I pour out the kingdom into this area and this area and this area? If it's true and if that's how good it is and if that's where I'm going, let me never grow weary in doing your work. Let me never grow weary in finding other people to love and and finding other people to share the goodness of Christ with. God, may I abound in that work. Lastly, knowing, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The Christian must have a knowledge change that no matter what life throws at you, no matter what the day looks like, there's this knowledge. God, I may have have messed up today. I I may not have lived up to the standard that that you've invited me to, but I know this. I know that you are for me. And with that, I can sleep well tonight. I can sleep well tonight. Christian, the day is fast approaching when the king of kings will return. May he find us waiting steadfastly, immovably, abounding in the knowledge of the Lord together. Will you pray with me? Oh God, give us a, give us a glimpse of heaven today. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name, that you would give us a glimpse of heaven today, that each of us would not be able to leave here not thinking deeply about what is to come, not hoping with a deeper fervency for what is to come. Lord, I pray for those in this room today, right now, that are suffering, that need a place to cling to, that need hope. Jesus, would they hope in Christ? Would they hope in you? And would you be enough for them right now? We love you, Lord, in Christ's holy name. Amen.